Drinking with Authors contains adult themes and subjects, including discussions involving alcohol. We ask if you are drinking along to please drink and listen responsibly. Enjoy the show. Oh, that's weird. Right? Is this what I sound like to other people? That is what you sound like to other people. Yes. I know. Okay, so we're going to start. So I'll start the intro and then you. Okay, okay. ready? No. Okay, we're going to do it anyway. Okay. Welcome to Drinking with Authors. I'm one of your hosts, Erica Lance, and with my trusty co host, Austin Collins, the other one. The other, other one. I am the other one. So, um, as always, we are going to have a lot of fun involving um, drinks and libations with our special guest today. Did you say libations? Li- li- libations, like with a B. Okay. Like, but in but the sense that it's live. It is, kind of like a live culture if yeah. you're a scientist. Yeah, or like uh, yogurt. Yes, there's a lot of culture in yogurt. Mm-hmm. I like very cultured yogurt, ones from old time especially. Absolutely. So, our guest today is the famed and amazing author, J.M. Paquette. Famed and amazing. Famed and amazing. Welcome, J.M. Paquette. Hello. Hello. So, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yes. Um, in our inaugural... Inaugural? That's not the right word. I don't even know what that is. It doesn't matter. I've been drinking a lot of Honey Jack. What are you drinking today, Austin? Rum and Coke. Rum and Coke. Cool. Our amazing producer, Adam Haney, is with us. He is drinking um, some white wine spritzer with ice in it. Not going to talk about that out loud. But, and Jen, you are drinking <laughs> soda. <laughs> yes. So we decided to have our inaugural, um, I'm not even saying that word right now. Inaugural. Inaugural. Okay. That um, drinking with actors with somebody who has an alcohol allergy, correct? <laughs> Good times. Yes. Well, you know, it's, it's drinking with authors. Not drinking authors, so we're doing the drinking. And the so author just be authorial. I just show up. That's true. I didn't think about it that yeah. way. How logical! Mm-hmm. Thank you, Austin, for being here. So we're fine. We're we're self consistent. Very self consistent. So, um, Jam, let's let's talk a little bit about your writing. So, you're just gonna. Do you ask me questions? I'm going to ask you. Okay. Questions. I don't know how this works. But no, that's fine. No, I think uh, I think she should start with her elevator pitch. Yes, what is your elevator pitch? That I write cheesy romance novels with vampires. That is a good elevator pitch. That's where it's at. Do they sparkle is the question? No, they do not. But I love Twilight in my soul, so it's fine. (laughs) So we have a couple of your books actually sitting here on the table. You want to uh, tell us about them? Okay, so the first one is Cloud and Ring, and that's the beginning of, uh, of the story of Hannah, who's a vampire, uh, born a vampire, not turned into a vampire, and uh, it's a romance novel, so it has a happy ending. And then the second one is Solon's Body, because it's not done there, um, and then it gets real, and, uh, and it doesn't have a happy ending. <laughs> awesome. Spoilers. So what inspired um, Cloud and Ring? Oh, I'm a D&D nerd, and uh, many years ago, I played in a campaign where uh, we rolled on a random table for effects to uh, see what kind of quirks our characters had, and my lovely DM, Jim, um, had one of the options was vampire, and that's what I rolled. So I was like, all right, well, what is a D&D vampire? And uh, so my, my D&D vampire is apparently not allergic to the sun um, and uh, was born that way. So I've kind of ran with that and then turned it into a story. Very cool. So when did you begin writing? This? Um, 
Well, probably 10 years ago. That was when we played. Yeah, it was 10 years ago. Yeah, okay. You were there. I, I'm saying that because I, <laughs> I actually was in that campaign and have been written into this book in you, not the most flattering way. You are one of my the best characters. You're Lyra. You're the voice of reason, which is terrifying. <laughs> that is true. So when did you start writing overall? Oh, when I was little. I got a typewriter when I was like seven, and I just started typing. And then I'm old, so our first computer was an IBM PC Junior writing assistant with the blue screen and the white letters, and I started writing on that. What kind of stuff did you start writing? Oh, cheesy fantasy stuff. Really bad, like teen angst. Always romance, because that's what I read, so that's what I write. Very cool. And so when you actually, so is um, Conjuring your first published work? Yes. I've got, yeah, I've got short stories other than that, but this is my first book. Very cool, and it's a three-part series? Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your characters. Okay, well, the main character is, is Hannah, and um, she's the vampire, and she basically leaves home because she finds out a big, deep, dark secret uh, about her history, and then she has to leave, and it's what happens to her when she, like, explores the world around her, and it's, to be honest, she's kind of a jerk um, at the beginning because she doesn't really know a whole lot about the world around her. And then uh, she slowly figures it out. And, and by meeting other people and learning about their lives, she grows and falls in love because, you know. It makes you fall in love with With the, the other main character, who is an elf named Rory. And I named him Rory long before Doctor Who had a cool Rory. I just want to point that out. He had the name Rory <laughs> from the very Not beginning. Really. I know. So he's an elf, so his name is something ridiculous, like Roran Valrhanus. And I was like, oh, that's a mouthful. So Rory it is. Um, and uh, so he is the elf, and you find out he's got this long, sordid history and has been sort of wandering around looking for meaning. And then he's like, oh, interesting little redheaded girl. I'll spend some time with you. Sparks fly. <laughs> Very cool. So what is the central conflict of this story? Well, she's a vampire, so she wants to eat him. And yet, <laughs> if she does, she will turn. In the way that I made my she vampires, can't her partner and have him too. Basically. Right, she'll turn him into a vampire if she does. Mm. So she's conflicted because she thinks he's like this wonderful hero, and then about halfway through, you're like, actually, no. You know, like he's just a regular person. He's an elf, but still, he's just, he's got just as many flaws as you do. So boy meets girl. Girl wants to eat boy. Girl debates whether or not it'd be a good idea to eat boy. Hilarity ensues. Girl gets captured. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> when did you first um, decide that you wanted to actually publish your work? Well, I joined a writer's group, and they were hooked up with a publisher, so it was a uh, an option. Because I've done, like, I do academic writing, so I had gone that route before, um, but this was my first fiction writing experience. What kind of ap- academic writing? Oh, I, I published my dissertation on uh, Stephen King, so... Stephen King, huh? Yeah, that's that's my background. Stephen King and, and Tolkien, obviously, because clearly, world of fantasy. So what do you do as an adult? Then? I'm a I'm a college professor. You're a college professor. I, I, I am. I you... teach English. Um, <laughs> 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 no, I teach English at a uh, at a local school, and uh, yeah, I uh, I teach a lot of like writing classes because that's basically what you do, and then. Um, I also love Old English is my background in linguistics, so if you've ever wondered why English is an absolutely ridiculous language, I can tell you, and it's because England got invaded a lot by different people. 
So that's the answer as to why English is a ridiculous language? Yeah, because every like couple hundred years, someone new was in there, and they're like, hey, you're German now. And then the French were like, no, no, it's all French now. And then Shakespeare showed up and was like, we don't have a word for that. Here's what it is. And he just started making sounds, and then boom, here we are. Awesome. Now can you explain American English? <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> that will take longer than this podcast. <laughs> that is awesome. Okay. So you started, you started with, um, you have two published. What is um, happening with book three? I am working on it. I'm right on top of that, Rose. <laughs> uh, reference for anyone that is don't tell mom the babysitter's dead, just to keep track. So you're right on top of that. When do you think it's coming out? Um, I don't know. I have some other things that I need to get published this year, so hopefully I'll be able to finish it in, I don't know, maybe next year. So tell us a little bit about your writing process. I start with conversations and then I go from there. So you begin with dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's all about interaction between characters. Mm-hmm. You build off of that. Do you like to plot out in advance? Do you have a full outline before you actually start the business of writing? Or? Uh, no, I should. Um, I, I have major moments. Like I knew going into Hannah that it had to have a happy ending, at least at the beginning. So I was like, all right, well, how do I get them to the happy ending? Because right now it's not looking good. Did you and, know what the happy ending was going to be? Oh, they were going to end up together, you know, and then ride off in the sunset. Because I hate, I'm the person, when I when I buy a new book, I read the last page, and I make sure that the names of the main characters are still there, because I read a book once where they killed the main character by having him fall off a roof, and then the bad guy walked up and killed him, and I was like, oh my God, how could you do this Never to me? Again. Never again. That, my trust. that author is dead to me. So when you're writing, you start with dialogue. Um, how much do you write in comparison to how much sort of ends up on the published page, do you think? Oh, I write a lot, and then I go back, and I, I Stephen King it, I, I hack and slash. Um, so I'll write something, and I, it'll be really, really long, and then I go back, and I'm like, mm, you don't really need this. You also don't need that. And because I start with dialogue, I have like pages and pages of conversation. So I need to trim that back and make stuff happen instead. So this is a trilogy. Mm-hmm. You have three books in the story. When you started the first story, how much did you know about the overall arc of all three books? I had no idea, but well, here I actually ended up finishing the first book because I was still in graduate school and I needed an elective, and I took a fiction writing class because I was like, I need something that doesn't require work. I got there, and he was like, You're going to be writing stories, and I was like, Oh, great, more more work. Um, and then I finally finished it, but I started the book at the end and then went back and, because I turned it in, that was my first like section, my, my first assignment, and my teacher went, okay, I need to know how they got here, because this is the end of a story, not the beginning. So then I had to plan out all of the beginning stuff, and then after that class ended, I ended up working with that teacher afterwards, and I wrote the second book sort of back and forth with him, and then now I have the third one in my head. I know how it's going to end, I just have to get them there. So do you start with enormous amounts of material and just whittle it down and whittle it down and whittle it down? Because you talk about cutting enormous amounts of dialogue. Do you do that overall? Yeah. Yeah, so you start with, you know, this bulk of material and you just shave it down and shave it down until you've got what you like. Mm -hmm. So I'll start with, uh, like, just two people talking in a room. And if you've ever, like, written down a, a conversation, there's a lot of fluff and filler in there. So what I do is I write down the entire conversation and then I go back and I'm like, all right, what are the important parts here? How does this move the story forward? Or how does this build a character? And then I'll chop out everything in between. Now that you're working on your third book, 
You go back and you look at the first book. Do you, do you question your decisions? Yes, <laughs> so many. Would you have approached things in a different way? You know, now that you're working on the third book, you look at the first one, it's like, oh man, I could have planted a seed here. I could have gone in a different direction. Yeah, or I screwed that up because I said this, and later on I know that that's not accurate. I'm going to have to go back and hobbit this and be like, oh, because Hannah wrote it, it's wrong, and now I need to fix it. Unreliable narrative. Yes, exactly. She just didn't know that she it's didn't know. to retcon, right? Yes. <laughs> So let's talk about writing overall. Who are your inspirational writers? You said uh, uh, Stephen King and Tolkien, mm-hmm. which you know a lot of people sort of gravitate to. Yes. Different kinds of storytellers they are, though. Definitely. Stephen King is character-focused, and he just tells you everything that you've ever wanted to know and then some about a character. And Tolkien will write an entire battle sequence in like a page and a half which has a lot to do with his like military background and wartime experience. He's like, I don't need to tell you how many people died. I'm pretty sure you can imagine it. Um, so there's very different styles of writing. Um, Tolkien, I tell my students this, I'm like, guys, it's a little more fun to talk about Tolkien than it is to actually read it. And I know that's not a popular opinion, but um, he's a professor of linguistics, and you can tell. Unless you love reading about trees and the environment, then you're in. But... Um, what else do I read? Um, I read fantasy, so, uh, you know, R.A. Salvatore, although he's the one that broke my heart by killing somebody, by falling off a roof. Anyway. Um, That's officially documented now. I know. published for all the world to hear, so what would you say to R.A. Salvatore? I met him at a book signing once, and I told him that. Yeah, I was like, you, I love you, but you <laughs> killed O'Brien, and I never forgave you. What did he so, say when he said that? He laughed inside my book. <laughs> he was like, uh, He was like, pretty crazy person, get away from me. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> so there was that. Um, I read all like the Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance books. Um, I, I kind of, I, I read like the Buffy books and the, if there's a series, um, I'll read it based on a TV show on that girl. Do you um, think, because you're uh PhD in English literature, correct? I am. Although you didn't say that formally, I'm going to formally announce she actually is Dr. Paquette. I am. So, um, but it's interesting because the things you're talking about reading are not the things that a lot of people, I think, would assume a PhD would be interested in because you're talking about a lot of fairly entertaining reading versus true literature. You're not listing the greats, so to speak. So. I- I get a lot of flack for that, um, or at least I did when I was in graduate school. In fact, um, writing, I wrote my thesis on Tolkien, which was fine. It was sort of like, all right, well, you know, we'll let it slide. And then for my dissertation, I wanted to write about Stephen King, and I had to, before they would let me do it, I had to explain why Stephen King was even viable. Like, I had to do a whole separate project explaining why there was worth there. And that's what you run into when you read a lot of fantasy. People are like, well, that's just fluff, and it's a waste of time. Now, why do you suppose that is, though? Well, that's a really interesting question, right? Culturally, why is it that we put more weight on certain genres and certain styles than others? Well, because fantasy is like the redheaded stepchild of literature. And be, oh, I don't know, I'm going to steal Tolkien here because I think he explained it really well. Um, we have this idea that if you read fantasy, it, it's called escapist literature because you're escaping from the world because somehow you can't deal with the world. And he says it's not that, like, he he phrases it two ways. He says there's the flight of the deserter versus the escape of the prisoner. 
And uh, the, the idea is, if you say, oh, you just read fantasy or romance novels because you can't handle the real world, you are saying it is the flight of the deserter, like you are running away from an obligation or a duty that you have. Whereas he says it's not like that because the real world is like a prison because Tolkien's super Catholic, fallen world, you know. So we live in a world that is imperfect in a lot of ways, and the only way to deal with that is to escape somehow to something beyond. And that's what fantasy gives you is a way of, of going beyond your everyday experiences. And he also talks about how through that experience of going beyond, you also manage to recover the things in the real world that you should be appreciating that you have forgotten about. Like you never appreciate your bed more than when you're with Frodo in Mordor and he's complaining about sleeping on rocks. And you're like, oh man, you know what's awesome is that I get to sleep in a bed tonight. So fantasy does that. I think it brings you like above and beyond and out of the world so that you can appreciate the world itself. Awesome. I'm going to make them cut this, but you have to put your hands down, my friend, because you're making noise in front of Mike, and I love you. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's no, I'm gesturing. You're, there's a lot of gesturing. You can do a lot of gesturing. It's just nobody can see it. So, um, well, you know what's interesting? I was thinking about this um, before you came, and we were talking about um, writing uh, the principle of a simple story. So we were actually talking about how they're making a new Bill and Ted's movie. And the, what did you call it, Austin? The idiot? The idiot plot. The idiot plot is the concept that the story doesn't work unless the major characters are stupid. Ooh, are we saying that the no. average reader is not, No, not that the story itself is stupid. Lots of stories are stupid. But this is a story that doesn't work unless the major characters are stupid. Like Bill and Ted, for example. Uh, that movie would not be entertaining if the two major characters were science nerds. That would be an insufferably boring movie because they would just talk the whole time about the space-time continuum, right? But because they're both idiots, it's funny and it's watchable and it has enduring appeal, right? And my other favorite example is the um, indecent, indecent proposal. proposal. Yeah, indecent proposal. That that is a movie that should have lasted five minutes. <laughs> So Robert Redford comes along and says, can I sleep with your wife for a million dollars? Okay, an intelligent person would either say, uh, yeah, a million dollars, sure, okay, yeah. Uh, you want to use out, my room? One for me. Yeah. Or, no, absolutely not, go away. Okay, the movie's over. But they somehow managed to pad this out to almost two hours. It's about his conflict. Yeah, exactly, but I mean, where's the conflict, ultimately? It's because they just, the characters don't really know, right? Do they love one another or do they love money more? Are you willing to sell your, your body for, for money and comfort and security or not? Yeah, I think most people would make that decision pretty quickly. <laughs> but, it's not, <laughs> but it's not about her decision, it's about his decision. Exactly. It's him letting her do it. Well, not necessarily. It could be her deciding, am I comfortable with this or not? And but, then as, but, a, as a follow-up, hey, honey, are you okay with this? I think I want to sleep with Robert Redford. Is that, is that cool? million dollars me sleeping with Robert Redford kind of a win-win-win here I would like to vote yes if that's an option but <laughs> back the, my question based on that goes back to you talk about like Tolkien or George R. R. Martin which I know inspires mm -hmm. anger among many because he can't finish his book series but you look at some of these sorry, guys George. and um, I'm we not love you. I, no, I'm not sorry right now. I'm one of the angry fans. But it goes to Tolkien created this massive world with all these, like, world buildings with all these pieces. And it seems like a lot of fantasy and even sci-fi goes into that based on what you said about 
pieces of literature that are considered literature, it's interesting to me because they seem to be the more complex pieces of literature, more complex storylines than even like 1984 and stuff like that, if you look at it. So I guess what are your thoughts on that as an uh, being on the literary side of things is that you see this thing where you have Tolkien creates this massive world and religions and races and language Mm-hmm. for this thing but it's not as acknowledged as somebody who you know writes eat pray love for instance well i don't know that eat pray love would qualify as literature i read it and it's it's okay um it's not my favorite she annoyed me that's really what it was so to try and read it from a literary perspective like yes it's great because it shows other cultures and she changes and that's wonderful but she changes by falling in love which is a romance novel not a self-help novel but anyway um, this idea that you, you have to have a complex world in a fantasy novel is, is from Tolkien, but Tolkien's not the first person to do that. Um, he, he takes that from all of fantasy before him. Um, I think fantasy has to try harder to be taken seriously, so because people are like, oh, well, it's fantasy, it's escapist, so you try even more to make your world believable and realistic. So I forgot where I was going with this. That's okay. You have, I want to point out you haven't been doing too much. Yeah, that's true. We have. She we has have. Not, she has so not. There's, so. there's sort of an asymmetry going on here. Very but I do want to bounce off of that since we're on the subject, if you don't mind, because you know when Tolkien is doing his world building, he's not reading high fantasy because high fantasy didn't really exist before Tolkien. He sort of invented the genre. He's reading philology and Icelandic mythology, right? But, but so he, what do you read when you want to create a world? Well, you run What's into to this idea of there's nothing new under the sun and you get that whole like anxiety of influence like nothing I'm making is is new so why should I bother that's like the modern author fear that I can't reinvent the wheel but um gosh he's also reading medieval fantasy because he's got a lot of damsel in distress stuff uh Tolkien but the what do I read um I read Tolkien but I I'm the nerd I read the history stuff um I I read I'm interested in history so I I read that um what else do I read? I love my mythology, my Greeks, my, my Vikings. Now, see, I think that's cool and valid and important, and I want to explore this a little bit, because reading nonfiction as a foundation for writing fiction, I think is a very interesting approach to the craft, right? I read history because I feel like, because all I read is romance novels a lot of the time, or fantasy novels, and it's, it's light and fluffy. Um, not to dismiss it, that it's escapist. It's, I think it's good for a person to to think that things are going to work out and the world is a nice place. Um, but I, I want to challenge my brain, so I read history books because of that. And I'm like, I don't know anything about 1657 in you know Ireland. Let me go find a book about it. And when you do that and you read true events from the past and you find that sort of percolating into a story that you're coming up with, I mean, don't you think that ends up sort of a, an authenticity I hope so. Um, I know I didn't, it's, it's not at all in my first book, but now that I'm, I'm kind of plunking away at book three, I keep thinking more about the history of the world that my characters live in and why are things this way, and this is a cultural or custom, but why? Where did it come from? Who started it? Is it theirs? Did they steal it? You know. And on that same subject, when you're working on a character, how much backstory do you know that you don't necessarily put in the story? A lot. I mean, give me an example of something you build into the background of a character that the reader doesn't need to know, but you need to know because you're figuring out the trajectory of this character. 
Well, <clears throat> the character that I based on, on Erica here, Lyra, I know her entire backstory, but in the book, she's a side narrator. Um, so she just shows up as Rory's friend who is seeing how Rory changed, because otherwise we wouldn't know that Rory had changed at all because Hannah meets him, and this is the guy that she meets. So we need Lyra, is the character, who has been his friend for a very long time, who comments about it. But I know why she says the things she does, because she has this entire backstory. By the way, Lyra is an albinist, a bench. Yeah. I'm very proud of that fact, by the way. You are like the least elf-like person that I know in the real world. I'm going to take that as both a compliment and an insult at it's, the same it's a time. Compliment. It's entirely a compliment. Is it? Mm -hmm. Do you, Are you anti-elf? Because I don't think our present guests will be happy if you communicate that. Oh, no. I'm, I'm very much pro-elf, but you are not elf-like. No. So what mythological creature would you associate with me? What mythological creature would you be? I think you would be, um, well, definitely something that uh, lures people to their doom. Like a siren. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think a siren would be a good choice. Well, uh, I hope I have that great of a singing voice, because that's what it takes to be a siren. I, I mean, I think Kelly Clarkson will take me off in 2.5 seconds. But, I mean, you know, clearly ruling all that you survey is deeply ingrained in your DNA. That's well, like, that's then I'm going to go with succubus, because I think that's succubus? way more likely than a siren. Yeah, succubus would be good, incubus. You know, incubus do you know the difference between cherubim and seraphim, by the way? The, the seraphim hang down from the roof of the cave. <laughs> you realize an incubus is a male version of a succubus, right? I think you could do whatever you wanted to do. I think that's, that's kind of part of your thing. Oh, okay, so I could I, be either or. I see you as a shape-shifting world-dominating force of nature. I'll take that in Whereas, 2.5 you know, seconds. An elf is more likely to retreat into the library to contemplate the philosophical implications of their decisions or perhaps read some poetry, and you're more likely to you know, draw a sword and go riding into battle on a horse and then change into some kind of monster and terrify everybody and yeah. then have a strong beverage afterwards. So that sounds like a great book, Austin. You should write that. Yeah, you know, the more I think about it, I think, you know, we should do a whole series of fantasy novels just about you and the kind of person you are. It would just have to be lightly, fantasy. Lightly fictionalized, and I emphasize lightly. We, we wouldn't have to embellish a whole lot, but I can certainly see why you've been used as the basis of multiple fictional characters because there's a lot going on there. Oh, wow. Look at how much compliments... I would blush if I had any sort of non ego Yeah, if, if you had you know, human emotions. Yes, I don't but have No, human I'm just emotions. kidding. We're all humans here. We're all regular human people who do ordinary human things like eat sandwiches. We don't have tentacles at all. Okay. That's not accurate. <laughs> so, Jem, tell us about um, your. Um, do you get writer's block or anything like that? Do you ever experience like it is difficult to write? And I know a lot of writers, I'm going to preface, um, say writer's block, but I sometimes feel like it's not, I can't envision the story, but it's I can't get my craft together to actually go write the story that I'm envisioning. So talk to us about writer's block. My writer's block is an issue of time management um, because I'm, I'm busy and I have a small child and a family and obligations, so finding time to write is hard. Um, I started this new thing, which is super effective actually, where I make myself write for at least 20 minutes every day, 
And I know that doesn't seem like a lot, but when I sit down, I, um, I have like 20 minute, I'm so lazy. I put on YouTube and I'm like 20 minute music blocks. And then I just click like whichever one pops up first. So I get to listen to delightfully different types of music for a period of 20 minutes. And I write and, and that's all I do. And like my husband has learned, like, don't ask Jen questions in the 20 minute. Like she'll be done in a little bit and then talk to her later. So that has helped me get over it. But my writer's block isn't that I don't know what's going to happen or where it's going. Um, I usually figure out my plot lines and, and what's going to happen next. I do that while I'm driving because my commute is kind of long. So I'm always in my brain. I know where it's going. So besides this 20-minute rule, what advice would you give people who are aspiring authors and stuff? It's cute if you can do this full time. And I know some people that are able to, whether they're a house person or a, that could be male or female, but or have a life that they can set up that they can do this as a job. But what advice would you give to people who can't and have to have like a real job and a real family to be able to put forth their artwork? Just don't give up on it, keep working on it. Even if you only do it in fits and starts, like, you know, I spent five minutes on it today. Okay, that's good, that's five more minutes that you've worked on it in some fundamental way. Is there any writing you find difficult? Like, do you um, go down a path with a story and then end up like, chucking the whole entire thing out the window? I chuck huge chunks of conversations <laughs> where I'll, I'll have characters in a room and then I'm like, oh, what would they say to each other? And they have rambling conversations, which I think echo like the conversations I have in my life where we meander from topic to topic and then I go back and I'm like, oh, I can't use that. Mm, that's not going to work. Maybe save that for somebody else later on. And, uh, and I break those down. Do you actually ever experience writer's block? Like well, true writer's block, like you hit a point where you're like, I have absolutely no idea what's happening right now. No, I get, like my brain will be tired if I spent the day grading papers and then I sit down and I'm like, oh, static. Um, but I don't know that that's writer's block. Like I always know I have words and I can put them down. It's more of me fighting my laziness, which, oh, here, um, I'm, my laziness is sort of a running theme in my life. Um, I have a bet with a friend of mine that if I don't write every day, I have to take the stairs at work. I cannot take the elevator. My office is on the third floor, and my classes are on the second floor, which means that I go up and down and up and down and up and down all the time. So if, uh, if I don't write the night before, then I have to take the stairs, and that's awful. So every night when I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go to bed, I'm like, no, 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 you want to take the elevator tomorrow. So. Now, is this on the honor system? Um, well, we, we, we fist bumped on it, and we've been doing it now for, gosh. It's a fist bump. It's a okay, fist bump so on like it. But is, now yeah. we have stair solidarity, which means that if, if I don't write, he also has to take the stairs. And if he doesn't work on his music, then I have to take the stairs. So we're, we're a team effort here. It's like going to the gym except for art. <laughs> no, that's good. But let's talk about community a little bit. What do you think, because um, I think a lot of authors by nature are solitary creatures or tend to be solitary creatures. How big of a difference do you think it means to have a writing community around you of some kind? It's huge, um, especially coming from academia where if you are a creative writer, you are expected to be writing the great American novel or something that is like culturally significant. And I'm like, I just write about vampires and romance. Um, so being around other people who write because they love writing and not because they are trying to make some sort of social commentary or they have... Everybody that I went to school with that took a fiction class had like an underlying reason, like I'm going to change the world, I'm going to do this. And I was like, I just want to write about vampires that I would like to read that book. So being around other people who write just because they love to write is really, really important. So how did you find that? Through, 
for you. Um, I found a, I found a writer's group conveniently, um, and now, oh, gosh, we meet every other week. Uh, it's been like five, six years now, and it's not a writer's group because I've been in the past, and because I'm an English teacher, inevitably in a writer's group, I turned into the, the free editor, which is great that I read your work, but at the same time, I'm like, I have other things that I need to be doing. So you don't really get to enjoy like a workshop sort of group. So this group is totally different where we don't, like if you want to read someone's work, you can, but it's not the obligation of the week. And I think that's why we still last. Like we get together, we talk about writing, we hold each other accountable. Like you said you were gonna do blah, did you do blah? And if you did, we're like, woo woo. And if you didn't, we're like, mm, okay, try again next time. So it's all about support and helping each other to keep creating rather than um, critiquing or yelling at each other. Do you think critiquing, especially from a community you're trying to create, creates a, uh, a barrier for a writer? It, it can, for sure. I mean, there are ways to do it where it's effective and, and helpful for everybody around, but the, the, the ones that I've been in before the group I'm in now, did, they didn't work very well. <laughs> Why do you think they didn't work very well? Because everybody just wanted the other person to tell them how great their work was, and they didn't want you to be like, well, as a reader, I'm really confused here. Well, they're like, well, it was very clear. And you're like, oh, okay. So it's, it was, I think, a combination of personality and, and perhaps youth, because I was a lot younger then. Ms. Pure, what do you think about finding people who not necessarily like to write what you like to write, but like to read what you like to write? What do you think the difference, like if you were in a group that didn't enjoy fantasy writing, how mm -hmm. difficult do you think that would be for you? Well, if I'm in a group like the one I'm in now, it wouldn't matter what I wrote as long as I was writing. Whereas if you write fantasy and you're in a group with people who are writing, you know, thrillers or whodunits or, you know, like women's fiction, then you're the oddball out. So it seems like people who write fantasy and romance too, they sort of glom together because we're writing similar things. And then when you get out of that genre, you get a different kind of, of group dynamic. Very cool. So what is it about vampires that there is, as much as people like to dismiss <laughs> vampires as, you know, as silly, right? It's... But they come up over and over again, right? And vampires, it's kind of like zombies. Mm -hmm. It comes up over and over again, and every single time, it's not really about vampires, it's about whatever we're either afraid of or fascinated by at that moment in time, right? Yeah. So what is it about vampires that's this interesting, unique cultural avatar that we can, we can explore what we're afraid of, what we are delighted by, what we want? See, I think the idea, I'm glad you brought up zombies, because I think zombies are your fear of other people, and vampires are your fear of yourself. Like, what is it within me? What kind of things do I want that I'm not willing to admit to myself? And I think that's part of what a vampire is, and it's also fear of death, because clearly immortality. Um, I'm sure there's something to do with consumption or tuberculosis, that long history, because vampires are pale, just like, you know, I mean, tuberculosis killed how many people? So it's that idea of um, my loved one is sick and dying, well, maybe somehow magically they will come back from the, li from, from the dead, and, uh, and then they'll still be alive somewhere, and I won't have to think that they're really gone. It's like changelings, but for grown-ups. <laughs> It seems like every generation we have books and movies about zombies and vampires, but they're all really about something else, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's about consumer culture, you know, or it's about class warfare, or it's about wanting a boyfriend. 
Well, you have, <laughs> you yeah, you have that. All right, let's see. Sorry, this Stephanie. is my okay. this is my defense of Twilight. It's 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 good for what it's supposed to be, which is a teenage book about a teenage girl who gets the ungettable get, and that's right. the that's the appeal. What do you want when you're young? You want the coolest person who doesn't want anybody to want you. You want to be desirable, right. and I think she nailed that, and that's why that book resonates. But this whole idea of consumer culture, the idea of a vampire like as a creature that sucks blood is old, but even before then you had you had anyone who preys on anybody else and steals their life mm -hmm. or their vitality or their health. And that kind of story is ancient, right? right? I mean, that's that's really the universal element, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's this idea that you're a being that thrives by drawing the life force, drawing the essence from others. Mm -hmm. And then that sustains you. And then why does that resonate today? Well, how much how much do we rely on other people in our lives to survive? Like, mm -hmm. how much energy are you sucking from those around you to support yourself? I mean, these are archetypes that seem you know, indestructible in culture, right? I mean, we just keep coming back to them. It's a, it's a perfect avatar. It's a perfect vehicle for telling all kinds of stories. And now they're sexy again, so. <laughs> Yeah. They had a they had a scary, gross, disgusting period with that Nosferatu stuff, but now vampires are, are hot and sexiness. Well, thank goodness that we're bringing vampire sexy back. It's important. Almost every author seems to have something that they feel really confident doing, right? That they do really well and they know it, and then things that they really struggle with. So what's something you feel like you really write well, you feel really comfortable writing, and then something that you feel like, you know, this is the part that I just have to do? I, I can write action sequences. Like, I can imagine where, because it's, it's a, like a medieval world and there's a lot of fighting and there's magic and swordplay. And I think that I narrate that well. Like, I can imagine how it's going and then I can, I can explain it and then later on have somebody else read it and they're like, oh, I can picture what's happening. So I think I get that part um, I'm, I'm solid with. I suck at ending a story. So figuring out where where to hit, like, I'm done. It's it's <laughs> terrible. I just drag it out and out and out. I'm like, oh, this should have ended like three chapters yeah, ago. What am I doing? I don't know. I want to see what happens after Happily Ever After. Like, I want the morning after, you know, for Cinderella is with her prince. Like, what do they talk about at breakfast? Mm. Just wanted to go on and on. Mm -hmm. at, at what point did you know the ultimate end of the entire arc? Um, at the beginning, I knew it was going to be a happy ending because that's me. Um, and if it didn't, I wouldn't read it. Um, so I just have to figure out how that's going to come back together. Like, I, I don't know, spoiler, but the end of the second book doesn't end well. It's the Empire Strikes Back ending. Right, right. So everything's fractured. So how do you, you how do you rebuild that? that? Yeah. How do you reconnect after everything that's happened? So what, how do you deal with what happens after? happily ever after how do you incorporate that into the story do you, do you like to plant seeds or like this is where this is going to be i do i also it's i'm playing in a, in a in a world that features in a lot of my other stories so in a short story i may bring back a character um, like Haganasty is a character in, in hannah but he shows up periodically in other places so I'll, I'll sprinkle characters who know about or maybe are like personally know the other person so you can kind of see like catching up what are you what are you doing lately <laughs> Five minutes to an hour, just so you guys know. What? Five minutes to an hour. Oh, so we have to wrap up is what um, our producer is saying to we us. We can keep going. I'm just no, it's fine. So, Jen, because we're obviously uh, not quite done with you yet, but if you were to give a message to any authors who are listening right now, what would that message be? Um, don't talk yourself out of writing something. Uh, 
a lot of times I'll have students come to me and they're like, mm, but I have this idea, but I feel like it's been done so many times before. And I'm like, yeah, but you've never done it. And we need to hear your version of that story. And that's what makes it worth doing is that it's yours. So I need to hear your voice telling me, I don't care if it's the same event. I want you to narrate Bill and Ted for me and it'll be different and it's worthwhile. Very cool. Thank you very much for being with us, even though you didn't get nearly intoxicated as we are, but we appreciate you being here. So thank you very much. I am. Thank you for having a sober person. <laughs> it sets a dangerous precedent. It does. If I wasn't allergic, I would totally drink. We will never do this again. No, this, this is the one and only. Yes. <laughs>